field crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Columbus, subject to 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. NCJA 1014. COVID-19 has certainly changed our lives in ways that we could never imagine, including the way we put this program together. Instead of my usual perch in a studio on the campus of the North Carolina Justice Academy East in beautiful downtown Salemburg, we are social long distancing to bring you this segment of our podcast, NCJA 1014. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. And through the miracles of technology and the expertise of producer-director Ramona Higgins to use it, I'm at my residence in central Piedmont area of North Carolina and my guest in her office in eastern North Carolina. That said, you can tell the commitment of the Justice Academy to help keep you abreast of the issues facing law enforcement. They never cease, even in the midst of a global pandemic. I believe you will find today's topic not just timely, but highly informative due to the knowledge and insight of my guest. In 2018, the voters of Pitt County, North Carolina, helped make history when they elected the first African-American female sheriff in the state of North Carolina. Sheriff Paula Dance has been in law enforcement for 30 years, the majority of which have been in Pitt County. Now, the topic of today's segment is dealing with social justice and police legitimacy. And if there is ever a timely topic for law enforcement, that time is now. And certainly to have someone with the experience of both is indeed an honor. Sheriff Dance, thank you for your time, but mostly your willingness to lend your insight to these subjects. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here and thank you for having me. Well, I know that you have had some personal experiences, first in your law enforcement career, and then when you were campaigning to become sheriff of Pitt County. I want to save the best for last. So if we can, let's delve into the topics that have a more national perspective first. Then we'll talk about your firsthand experiences. I believe in the radio and TV business, they call that a program tease. So let's get right down to some of the things that have a more national perspective, and then we'll come back to North Carolina. First, the current disparities in the criminal justice system bring about questions of inequality. So my first question is, in your opinion, what are some of the things that we as law enforcement can do to change these disparities? Well, the disparities in the criminal justice arena is often not the result of overt racism, but rather in an unconscious, implicit bias. Uh, these biases often occur during split-second decisions that drive arrests, shooting deaths, and the incarceration of Black and Latino men. Implicit bias, as we know it, is the automatic association that people make between groups of people and stereotypes about these groups. Some areas that we as law enforcement can change these disparities is by raising awareness of implicit bias among public leaders and law enforcement officers. Change should begin with the fundamental understanding about 
implicit bias and how we recognize these biases within ourselves. Another change would be to put in policy or to put policy in place that limits the impact of bias. Um, I, I believe an example of this is, um, for example, if you're uh, the pursuing officer, you should not be the same officer who puts handcuffs on a suspect. This very policy adjustment can disrupt the strong emotions that are often felt by both the officer and the person being arrested. So that's just one um, example uh, that I would give in that particular policy in how we do business. Well, and I think that is an absolutely awesome example, uh, whether it is a vehicle pursuit or a foot pursuit. Those of us who have been involved in those before, for lack of a better term, at the conclusion, you're really amped up because the you want this thing to conclude safely for both you and the suspect, but I certainly have experienced those times when I caught up to that individual and the only thing that I could think about in my mind was securing that person as quickly as possible and sometimes not giving a great deal of thought about how that security went in. So that that is an absolutely perfect example that you've come up with. And, and that is a policy change. And that is, I believe, what a lot of law enforcement agencies in this country are having to do now. If they haven't already, they're certainly in the planning stages. And I'm sure that's happening in Pitt County as we speak. Absolutely. Part of this whole process, I think, is about trust. We've all seen the news accounts of just a general division of where people are in law enforcement. Some that trust law enforcement implicitly, and some that are on the other side. You know, we've heard that term, defund the police. So gaining the trust of all citizens, reducing that biased policing that you talked about, and helping curb the us versus them perspective certainly is going to be a difficult challenge given the current climate. So how can we restore the faith in the brotherhood of law enforcement and build mutual respect throughout the agency and more importantly in our communities? Well, we can begin to build this respect by transforming the conversation between police and the community. You know, I often say it's a two-way street and we have to meet in the middle. But when you when a law enforcement agency cultivates a diverse workforce, preferably by hiring from within the community it serves, it sends a strong message of equality throughout the community. This often creates conditions within the agency for contact between groups and can reduce negative implicit bias among officers and the community. So when we're taking people from the community and hiring in a diverse way, then it sends that message that, you know, we want to be able to um, have officers that can identify with the community in which they serve and have a vested interest in that identification and making a um, more smoother and easier way to have to open those lines of communication. So I guess in a roundabout funny sort of way to kind of put this 
into perspective and, and take it a step down, it really is going to begin in the recruiting process. So you as a sheriff obviously have to have your eyes on your community to look at the demographics of the community and somehow begin to recruit um, BLET certified individuals or individuals in your community that reflect the community from a policing standpoint. Am I kind of headed in the right direction? There? That is exactly where, that's exactly um, what I was saying. And you said it in a different way, but we both are saying the same thing. My wife says I do that a lot too. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the more hands-on of the nitty gritty of policing. Um, I've heard police chiefs say that, and, and sheriffs as well, that sometimes policing is not pretty. And it's not pretty because of the things that police officers are sometimes forced to do. That's, that's going hands-on, that's using an asp or a baton, that's using pepper spray, that, that's using the taser. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's also using a handgun. But before it gets to that point, more and more training is going into de-escalation tactics and techniques. And, and these are actions used by officers when situations warrant it without compromising the position or the priorities of law enforcement. So, you know, you and I and, and most of the officers who are listening talk about that force continuum. So we start at the lowest level and we and we work our way up. So when time and circumstances permit, should officers consider whether a subject's lack of compliance is a deliberate attempt to resist or an inability to comply? And if so, what factors do you think that law enforcement officers have to consider? You know, I, I often say, and you'll hear me say this a lot, de-escalation, de-escalation, de-escalation. I'm a firm believer in that. When we can and when it's safe. A clear distinction between de-escalation and verbal control should always be attempted when time and circumstances allow. You know, oftentimes an angry person might be talked down through their anger with de-escalation and with verbal control. There are many considerations when measuring the totality of situations. Um, considerations should be made to possibly dealing with, a, uh, you, you have to think about sometimes we deal with people who are hearing impaired or an autistic individual. You know, time is on our side in many cases uh, when dealing with situations. You know, we should make an assessment um, keeping officer safety in mind behind cover while assessing the individuals that we are engaging. So in other words, when time is on our side, let's take advantage of that time while being safe and assessing exactly what we're dealing with. A lot of times, um, I know my agency and officers go through a CIT training, that's a 40-hour training that lends us the ability to think about uh, things and, and or reasons why people may not be complying. And sometimes we will find that there are some physical um, or mental um, 
impairments that uh, may cause someone not to comply with our verbal commands, but at all times and when possible, de-escalation, de-escalation, and I'll end with de-escalation. So I think the word of the day may, in fact, be de-escalation. Absolutely. Another term that I have heard a, a lot of law enforcement agency heads use, and I'm going to try to paint this picture as best I can for our listeners. On the street, many times law enforcement officers encounter individuals who believe their position, whatever it may be, that their position is correct. Um, An officer stops an individual on the street. The officer asks the individual to produce identification. This individual believes there is no valid reason that exists for him to have to, or her to have to identify themselves in any way. And instead of de-escalating, it goes in the opposite direction and it escalates. And it's the officer going, I need to see your identification and the individual saying, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. And it kind of rises to the occasion. And I've gone way around to get to this point for your comment. A term that I have heard, and certainly I think it is on the backs of law enforcement to put this message out there, which is to comply first and complain later. If you comply first, the escalation of that situation probably is not going to take off. And if you feel that it's wrong or an injustice has happened, or for whatever reason you think that encounter has not been in your favor, then go complain. Is is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. Uh, listen, I, I I know to whom much is given, much is required. And when, you know, in the position that I'm in and the opportunities that I have to mentor to our young people or to, I mean, sometimes older people need to hear this message <laughs> too. You know, out, uh, when, when you have an encounter with law enforcement, no matter what your, your preconceived ideas of what the law says, it is not the proper venue out there on that scene in that situation to address that. There are other venues for uh, issues to be addressed in um, after the encounter is over. Because you got to remember, you know, we're stopping people. Our adrenaline, our, our level is already up um, as it comes to, you, you know, not knowing who we are stopping, not knowing what they may possess that could harm us. And we want everybody to go home safely. And I often tell people, I'm not asking you, or we're not asking you to take your hands out of your pocket just because we can. We're asking you that because we don't know what you have in your pocket that may hurt you that may hurt us. And so the best thing to do, and I always preach it, is comply with the officer. And if you think that something was done inappropriately, then there's always time to go back and file your grievances and have someone else look at it when tempers are down and we're not putting officers or the public in danger 
um, because we just don't know what we are encountering. This isn't a job that you go into and you're going to be doing the same ABCs, uh, you know, or the one, two, threes every day. Every single encounter is different and we just don't know. So we say things and ask for things and ask people to do things, not because we can, but because we want everyone to be safe. Argue about it later, but when you're on that scene, don't put people in a position to feel that they fear for their lives. We all react differently when we do fear for our lives. Excellent, excellent observation. Thank you, Sheriff. So that leads me into this, that I think the, the whole encounter between law enforcement and the public comes down to communication. Um, as an instructor in BLET at one time, I used to say to the, to the young guys and girls that I was training, let your mouth get you out of more situations than your mouth will get you into. And, and you will find over your career that you can talk your way out of a lot of situations that, that could go bad or that you're going to have to put your hands on someone if you take that opportunity to communicate to them first. So with that said, police officers may have more barriers to communication now because of the image that they are conveying, a position of authority and the nature of their work, just as you spoke of moments ago. So what are some of the communication tips that we can use to mitigate or reduce these barriers to more effective communication? Effective communication by police matters more now than ever. I mean, communication skills are a key ingredient to success for law enforcement or for the law enforcement profession. Uh, law enforcement officers, you know, we, have to, we must understand how to communicate with people from diverse backgrounds under different and often unpredictable uh, conditions. Good communication skills can build trust and foster an atmosphere of mutual respect and empathy. Communication is very important. Uh, uh, you know, as an example, with me being a female officer, and I probably can speak for many female officers, you know, we don't have the physical um, strengths often that men have. So our biggest tool for women is the gift of gab, the gift of being able or, or being able to effectively communicate uh, to people uh, in a manner that, you know, that they can understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that oftentimes gets us out of having to resort to physical altercations. And it has worked for me in a 30-year career. I'm here to, to tell the story and share for Pitt County uh, and being a woman uh, after 30 years of this profession. So I'm, you know, I, I'm telling you this from experience that effective communication matters and it matters uh, and it's very important that we are able to be able to use those skills to get us through. And then again, a roundabout funny sort of way, doesn't that tie back to our earlier discussion about recruiting individuals for law enforcement? that reflect the faces in our community. Sometimes women just feel more comfortable talking to women. A Hispanic individual 
may feel more comfortable talking to someone who is either Hispanic or is fluent in that language. So it's it's really as much of a comfort zone as it is a communication zone, isn't it? Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Well, I want to kind of take a, a hard right turn out of Pitt County and talk about some of your personal experiences. As I noted in the beginning of our segment, your law enforcement career started some 30 years ago. And if I recall correctly, it didn't exactly begin the way that you anticipated. So tell us about your experience of getting into BLET and then your indoctrination of that first job. Yeah, so and I often tell people, um, you know, you'll hear you'll hear people say that, you know, I always grew up wanting to be a law enforcement officer. Well, that that was not true for me because I you know, I didn't grow up thinking, Oh, when I grow up I wanna be a law enforcement officer. It happened to be it was more of a happenstance that uh got me into this arena before I realized what my niche was in life. Um and you know, I started off by going into a sheriff's office and 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 working as a clerk slash jailer. And then one day I had a sudden epiphany. This is oh man, this is what I love to do. I love going into work every day. And I used to watch the guys and I say guys go in and out and and uh, deal with the public that came in and and how they dealt with the public by looking at their cases uh, when they would come in and type their reports. And and again, I. It was then that I had a sudden epiphany that this was my niche, this was my career, this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Sent myself through the academy and um, went to work during the day and went to the academy at night and came back with my certification and says, hey, here I am. I've, I've got my certification and I'm ready to be an officer. They swore me in, gave me a gun and a badge but then told me that I would have to stay in the office. Uh, at that point in Martin County, they did not believe in women being on the road. Um, of course, that didn't stop me. Um, and it was later in life for me. I was married with three children, um, but I was I was uh, deterred, but determined and um, determined not to be deterred and uh, came to Pitt County and put in an application. It was perfect timing. And I was a twofer as I say, uh, a minority in two ways. I was a woman and I was African-American. Um, and uh, they, uh, within a month, uh, they did my background. And within a month, I was working as a deputy sheriff on patrol here in Pitt County and um, have been here ever since. I've you know worked my way up through patrol and and within three years, I was promoted the sergeant of a newly formed domestic violence unit that we had here, where we were beginning to address the issues of uh, domestic violence. We, we were realizing how many people we were losing to that um, as far as their lives. And shortly thereafter, I was promoted to a major crimes investigator, um, went on to go to uh, well, as a major crimes investigator, I investigated some of the most high-profile murder cases here in Pitt County, went on to become a lieutenant of the investigative unit, became the captain of the um, entire investigative unit at that point to include the uh, narcotics unit. And then in 2013 was my first major milestone when I became the first 
uh, female African-American major in the history of Pitt County Sheriff's Office. Um, stayed in that position until uh, the sheriff before me, Sheriff Elks, whom I love dearly, um, decided he was no longer going to run for sheriff. He was he was hanging up his handcuffs and, and was going to go home and enjoy his family. I looked around me, um, and of course, I only saw men in the um, upper administrative uh, area. And um, but I, I knew that I was the most qualified person to uh, continue to lead this office. I knew that I had a vision that was maybe a little different, but that I wanted to bring that vision uh, to the sheriff's office. And, and you know, I often tell people I didn't run because I was African-American and I didn't run because I was a woman. I just happened to be the most qualified person uh, to carry this office on and happen to be a woman and happen to be African-American. It has been such a great honor to lead the way for other women in law enforcement to know that there is not a certain uh, position that you get to and then that's just it for you. I've broken that glass ceiling and I have that opening for other women to follow behind and to come through and to continue to break other ceilings. Just an absolute great story. And and I'd like to kind of follow through with that because it um, you had an incident happen while you were campaigning that really ties back to this whole situation that we've been talking about in our discussion. At the end of his third term, Sheriff Elks decided to retire. Obviously, you decided to run for sheriff. And that was two years ago. But there was an incident, actually a defacing of one of your campaign signs. Talk about that, and please feel free to include your feelings after you saw it. Yeah, so, you know, running um, for sheriff for me um, had several, I knew it would have several obstacles. One um, being a female, and there would never been another female. And certainly there was those conversations about the ability um, of a woman to lead an agency. The second um, obstacle was the race, you know, uh, my ethnicity, uh, uh, what color I was, what I looked like. And, um, you know, this particular campaign, and, and, and it reared its ugly head at times through social media, through um, messages left on my campaign line um, that I often, you know, never even spoke about. And um, this particular incident was one that um, I could not be ignored. It was very blatant. Um, and as a matter of fact, I was on my way to a uh, church to speak on a Sunday during during the camp um, during the campaign trail, and um, happened to go through an area and looked over and saw one of my signs uh, that had been nailed to the stop sign, and it had um, a Confederate flag placed over my face and some um, wording up there. I can't exactly remember what it was. Um, what the wording was on it. And I was stunned. Um, I, was, I was stunned uh, to see that. I was a little bit in shock. I, I had to turn around and come back and I had to sit there for a minute to let it sink in exactly what I was seeing. And once it 
sank in. Of course, I made the appropriate calls to have someone come um, from uh, the sheriff's office to uh, retrieve the sign uh, in hopes of looking uh, for evidence that would lead back to the perpetrator of um, of that. Now, this wasn't just um, your typical, and, and all all. Um, people who are running for office will have complaints about missing signs, had some of those too, um, or, you know, different little things. Um, but this was very egregious um, in the sense of the uh, symbolic nature of the uh, flag being placed over my face. Um, that sent a message that was not in words but rather in, um, you know, what that meant. And so certainly, um, you know, that information was turned over to an outside agency. Unfortunately, uh, they were not able to retrieve um, any evidence to tie it back in. Since then, um, you know, since I've been sheriff, um, I have um, given some further information that I learned uh through uh, another investigation of, of, of where this possibly came from. But yes, it reared its ugly head. Um, and I think that was um, more shocking than some of the messages that, that were left um, on my campaign line. But at the end of the day, I had to remember what the goal was, you know, um, would I love to fix all of the uh, race relations that all the ills um, as it pertains to race relations? I absolutely would. Um, but unfortunately, there's I don't think there's anyone that can do that at this point. On all we can do is continue to put do our little part to make those things better. And, and hopefully it, it trends across our, our world and our nation and, and um, everyone would come to recognize that each and every person has some reason for being here and some um, addition or you know, something to offer to the world um, in, in our time. And so mine, I feel, is, you know, in, in what's going on in the climate that's um, that we're facing today, uh, I just feel like I'm in the right place at the right time and uh, with an ability to understand all around me because I wear two hats. I wear a hat when I'm in this uniform. I, I support law enforcement. Obviously, I do every day. I put on a badge and a gun and come out to to uh, help protect the people of this community and the people of the state of North Carolina. But there's a point of time that I take this uniform off and um, and I see the other side of the coin in some respects as well. So I have to find that happy median, medium, and I have to um, recognize that um, I'm a part of both worlds, and I've just got to make it work. It gives me an ability to, to see both sides of that coin. I am a coin, and there's two sides to me, and, um, and I want to live my life and, and, and my profession in such a way that uh, is an example to everyone else. Um, 
uh, in the world, in our community, uh, in the nation. Wow. Well, whether you know it or not, you just delivered a very powerful message to both sides of the issues of social justice and inequalities. And I hope people will pay attention. Pitt County Sheriff Paula Dance is the only African-American female sheriff in the state of North Carolina and one of only a handful of her race and gender in the United States. Our topic today has been social injustice and police legitimacy. Sheriff Dance, once again, an honor to speak with you and thank you so much for lending your expertise and insight to these topics and for sharing your very deep personal feelings about them as well. Thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We will continue our discussion on social justice in a conversation with Rocky Mount Police Chief George Robinson in a future podcast segment. Please check back on the Justice Academy website periodically. Until then, you've been listening to NCJA 1014. And as always, please stay safe. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions that you would like answered, please contact us. Send any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed to NCJA information at ncdoj.gov. We're here for you.